Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I have to say, I don't really care about spoilers and books. Oh, dude, I just completely disagree. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I just, it hasn't, I think because I review so much, I mean, I try not to like really destroy the experience that a reader is going to have going into a book for the first time. But like, sometimes you just kind of have to say like, oh, the baby dies on page 30. And like, you know, (laughs) that's the animating energy of the novel thereafter. (laughs) Because otherwise, it's just so difficult to talk about. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to talk to anyone or read the book on time, and sometimes the author even stops by. Our February pick is Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. Here's how the story goes. Amanda and Clay, a white couple, get an Airbnb on Long Island with their two kids to enjoy some time away from the city. One night, there's a knock at the door, and it's an older black couple. Ruth and G.H. say they own the house and that a blackout happened in this city and ask if they can stay at the house they own. That is what the book is about, but that's also not at all what it's about. I have kind of been enjoying describing it as a quiet apocalypse story, and I can't wait to hear from the author himself about it. Ruman, welcome to Nerdette. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I know you've talked about this before, but I think it's a really interesting notion, especially with this book. Like people have said so many different things about what this story is. They're reading a lot into it. And I think partly that's because there is so much space to be able to do that. But, you know, you like people have talked about how it's like a climate change novel. It's about parenting. It's about race and class in America. I'm curious what it was that you set out to write. Well, those three things that you just mentioned are all deeply intertwined with one another the longer that you look at them. So I think Mm. that kind of reveals one answer. (laughs) Um, I definitely was thinking a lot about climate and um, the, the challenge of transforming an abstract reality into a metaphor that would actually work on a reader. Mm. And so... I definitely was thinking about that as I wrote. I was also thinking, as you said, about the experience of being a parent, which I am. I have two kids Mm -hmm. who are probably going to start screaming at some point during this recording. (laughs) Um, And so those were the issues that were on my mind. But I suppose I had 250 pages to make my argument. So maybe it's not even salient what I say the book is. You know, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. you kind of have to make your peace as a writer with handing it over to the reader and letting them make of it what they will. I kind of love that. Um, And I think, I mean, I hope that you would have come to peace, especially with this book, because it, I mean, it's, is it fair to say it's intentionally vague? Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes, there is a, this is a book about an emergency that is happening far distant. Right. Right. And it's about six people, the, the, white family you described a family, family of four, four. and yeah. the the black owners who who come to seek shelter at the home that they that belongs yeah. to them yeah and 
they are negotiating an emergency that they can't quite see or identify. Right. And TV's out. There's no cell service. Exactly. There's there's no connection to the world. They don't have internet service. There's They can't make their cell phones work. The television doesn't work. So they are unable to see what's happening. The reader's able to see a little more than the characters are, but not much more. Because yeah. I think what is interesting is not what that emergency is. It's how they respond to it. So the emergency becomes a strange kind of fill in the blank. It, you know, I think a lot of readers in this moment are reading it as, within the context of the emergency of public health that we're living through. Mm-hmm. And so that's inescapable. But I'll say, you know, when I when I turned in the first draft of my book and I was having a conversation with my first editor, because I, I had two different editors, really three, work on this book. Mm-hmm. She said to me something about aliens. She said, you know... I understand, blah, 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 this needs to happen, this needs to happen, and, you know, when the aliens land or whatever it is that's happening. And I thought that was so funny because awesome. it's true that it is, it's so open-ended. It becomes a kind of psychiatric evaluation, I think, of what it is the reader is thinking and is most concerned mm-hmm. about, whether you're concerned about family, whether you're concerned about climate, whether you're concerned about, you know, community in the face of disconnection. It, it's sort of a fill-in-the-blank emergency and that blank becomes really telling yeah it was so interesting i've already heard from a couple of nerd out listeners who have sent in their thoughts about this book and one said she liked it a lot but she's a really type a person and she had just had such a hard time with the uncertainty of it which was such a fascinating thing to hear because it was you know it's like well yeah that's the point my dear (laughs) you know it's definitely there's a real discomfort around the book's um vagueness for a lot of readers. And I think that I love that particular discomfort. That's so much a part of what the book is trying to achieve, which is that Mm -hmm. that's the condition, I think, of life today, is that discomfort, that not knowing, that despite having access to more information than any people on the planet ever have, we still don't really know what's happening. And that is so, that can be really crazy-making. And indeed, there are definitely readers who find that really... Um, a provocation or an irritation. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's just especially interesting to think about in the context of of this pandemic, which I think has really brought to light to a, a lot of different people how uncertain things really are, you know? Yeah, it does seem as though even even prior to the pandemic, if you look at what was happening in the domestic politics in this country between 2016 and 2020, it suddenly revealed, and I write about this in the book, the extent to which so much of what we understood as the rules of society was just a kind of tacit agreement. It wasn't written down anywhere that, you know, you could, you, that a head of state couldn't call another country a shithole, for example. Sure. You know, and so once those rules began to be broken, it just sort of laid bare that maybe the rules didn't really exist in the way that we always told ourselves they did. Yeah. Yeah. I think, too, just that idea of how much I don't I mean, the thing the the experience I really had reading your book was thinking about how desperately we all cling to performing those rituals that we're used to doing on a daily basis that that make things seem normal, even in a time where it's just completely unprecedented and totally bizarre. Yeah, it's all we know, though. It's all we know. And I have to believe that, you know, you take even a person in 
considerably more dire straits than you or I, right? A person mm-hmm. seeking mm-hmm. refuge in another nation or something, living in, you know, a dispossessed person living in a refugee camp somewhere Absolutely. is still going to want to celebrate like the birth of a child. They're still yeah. going to want to have like a nice dinner at the end of the day or like watch their children draw with a pencil and feel moved by that. Like these are sort of the fundamentals of contemporary existence and they don't we don't shake them off that easily. After the break, we're going to hear from Ruman about some of the social dynamics in the novel and of course, we're also going to discuss the Netflix adaptation. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I think there's a version of this story that could have existed that was just about one of the families being there and having weird things happen. Yeah, Uh, I was really fascinated, though. I mean, I think... Adding a second family added all of these really fascinating race and class dynamics, which which elevated the tension in a really interesting way. Was that always part of the story that you wanted to write? It was. It was. It felt like a more a more accurate way. If I was thinking about climate as I set out to write, it felt like a more accurate metaphor for the climate, which is that just as these six people are trapped in a house, the 7 billion of us are trapped on this planet. Mm-hmm. Climate change does not actually affect people equally. And we know that. Um, right. We know that communities of color suffer disproportionately the effects of climate change. We know that um, less nations that do not pollute to the extent uh, that we do, right. do not see necessarily the result right now anyway, um, that they're sort of like, punished more by the systems of weather and climate than, you know, what we love to call developed nations. Um, So we know that there's unfairness, but it's still an interesting way of thinking about how we are all trapped here. And it's coming for all of us in equal measure. Yeah, I think, I think. You have said that all the characters in this book are you. (laughs) Did I? I said that? <laughs> you did say that. Well, <laughs> Can you elaborate um, on that a little bit? Well, you know... <sighs> Do you want to take it back? <laughs> I, I don't want to take it back necessarily, but it's 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 funny to hear it quoted back at me. Um, <laughs> it's all you've got as a writer, really. That's all you have mm-hmm. access to is your own psyche. Um, <laughs> you know, if you think about... like, I think I probably said this before, too, but we don't really have any proof that what you perceive as the color of the sky is what I perceive as the color of the sky. You just have your own sense of what the sky looks like. And there's no way to ever verify that against someone else's sense of how the sky looks. Mm -hmm. 
So you're trapped. You're trapped in your psyche. You always are. And a novel is also just pretend. It's all pretend. And it's an assemblage based on your own understanding of, you know, how the sky looks. And you can't really get past that. And so as you conjure these pretend people, I think anyway, maybe maybe it's just a failure of my own imagination, but you can't <laughs> help but turn out people who are just sort of versions of you that the their relationship to things their their you know the attempt to get to some psychological interiority is always just relying on your sense of yourself or your guess about someone else mm-hmm. so i do think it's a particular trap at the same time i'm really resistant to people reading fiction and being overly attentive to the reality of the author, because I don't think that gets you very far. So I guess perhaps it's hypocrisy that I want to have it both ways that, <laughs> you know, the fake people are always me, but that's not interesting. What's interesting is the stuff that I've tried to fake. God, that is really interesting. I kind of love that, though. <laughs> I think one thing that makes this book so fascinating, too, is the idea that there aren't really any good choices to make, I don't mm. think. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. I mean, I think it is a group of people experiencing an emergency. And it's not unlike when you watch a film about a serial killer, right? And there are like six sexy co-eds like trying to outrun the serial killer and, and like the blonde the blonde girl wants to go skinny dipping for some reason and the black guy wants to go back into the house and like go up to the attic and explore and you, the audience, are just yelling like, okay, black guy, don't go into the house because you know you're going to die mm-hmm. because you're the mm-hmm. only black character in this movie. And blonde girl, like, don't take off your top and go skinny dipping because you're yeah. going to die too. Like, we know that we know how bad We're that gonna is. We're going to see your boobs and then you're going to die. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's the that's the promise. That's the convention of those films. But <laughs> there's really no good answer. There's no. And I think that that feels to me so close to the contemporary moment. Mm-hmm. There is no good answer. Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to, you know, fine, renounce using plastic drinking straws. That's great. But like, unless yeah. you personally are the CEO of Exxon, I'm not sure that your individual choices are really going to sh- change any aspect of contemporary life. That's so difficult to reckon with because we're yeah. all, you know, we're all going to feel the effects of these big cha- these big choices, but we're not the ones making them. So it can make you feel a little deranged, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't like when you really think about it, real life is pretty fucked up, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it can be. But I also think that there's something really remarkable, as I said, about like whether no matter no matter the experience of your life, if you are trying to squeeze out a little bit of joy that's a human impulse and that can be really beautiful. And, you know, you can have like, you can celebrate the birth of a new child, whether you're, you know, a comfortably middle-class person in the United States or whether you're like a stateless person, you know, negotiating, you know, a grave political conflict and you're still getting that same experience of joy. And that matters, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of something Victoria Schwab talked about her book, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and the idea of defiant joy, which I Mm -hmm. think is just a really Mm -hmm. beautiful concept. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're talking about, too, right? It's like against all odds, you have to, because what else else do we have? 
there's really nothing else, I don't think. Yeah. So you sold the rights for this book to Netflix before it even came out as a book, right. right? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, it still doesn't quite seem possible that that happened That's but amazing. it did yeah. happen um yeah it's extraordinary it's extraordinary what can you tell us about where things are in the process um so the book somehow over the summer before it came out found its way to sam esmail who's a writer and director who made a show called mr robot and he made a wonderful show called homecoming with julia roberts mm-hmm. and sam really enjoyed the book and so we had a telephone conversation in July in which he just, you know, it was one of those, it was such a lovely conversation because at that point in the book's life cycle, no one has read it except your editor and your agent and the publicist. And they, of course, are saying, oh, this book is great, but this is a lot like having your parents tell you that you're good looking. (laughs) Um, It's like, of course you think it's good. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, you're going to be your job for the next few months, you know, to have another artist disconnected from the process want to talk to you on the phone and say like, Hey, I really liked this book. Like, let's talk about it It was Mm -hmm. so lovely. And we had such lovely conversations that were really about the text and, and what, what Sam felt the book was accomplishing for him as a reader. And, you know, he honestly, he was one of the first readers I had that conversation with. Um, so we sold the book to him I suppose that was July. I think it was July. And um, Sam is an extraordinary writer as well as director. So he's the one who's writing the script. I think he just, I think he said this in an interview recently that he has a draft of the script and Mm. is looking forward to getting it made. Um, Julia Roberts, with whom he worked on this show Homecoming, will Mm -hmm. star as Amanda, who is the visiting vacationer in the novel the mom and denzel washington will play gh whose surname is also washington and Uh in who is described inside of the book as looking a bit like denzel washington so it's a really extraordinary and i mean to have artists of that caliber sign up for to bring your work to life is incredible i mean it's insane and yeah it's totally insane i mean i think there was a lot of there's a lot of cinematic um yeah the, there's a lot of cinematic inspiration in this book i and i and that's one of the things that I talked to Sam about in those early conversations um Mike Nichols has an extraordinary film adaptation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that mm-hmm. I thought about a lot when I was writing the book because it's this it's such a strange experience of watching this film because you're sort of trapped in this reality with these four people. And you can tell that things are not what they seem, but it's very hard to figure out what's wrong. It's very hard to figure out what, like, it seems really convivial and fun. And, but you can tell that there's something menacing underneath that. And it's really difficult to figure out what it is. That's sort of the genius of all these play, but I think Nichols' film is really, really communicates that. Um, There's also a film by Michael Haneke called Funny Games, which is just one of the most harrowing cinematic experiences I've ever had. Um, It's really an extraordinary movie about violence. And it's it's really, really scary and weird and also hilarious. Um, And so I was thinking about that a lot. 
It's so funny, though, because I, I have heard people say, like, oh, the book, it's written like a film. I don't know if I agree with that. Hmm. I wish it were so easy to write a book that somebody would want to make into a movie because I would have done it three books ago. Sure, um, of course. <laughs> you know? But I've had such a happy experience putting the work in the hands of someone like Sam Esmail, like someone who I really trust and who I really think yeah. has a vision for it. That's really amazing because I don't know. I mean, I've talked to a fair number of authors who have have been varying degrees of involved in the screen adaptation of their work. And there are so many different versions. And, oh, yeah. you know, oh, some yeah. people want complete control over everything. Others are happy to just hand it off to someone whose yeah. creative work they trust. It sounds like you're kind of in that latter category. And I wonder... I think that's right, yeah. You know, like you talked about how how so much of writing this book in particular was about kind of handing it to a person and letting them fill in yeah. the blanks, letting them yeah. make the conclusions that they want to come to. Do you think having that relationship with your book might have helped you make it easier to hand it off to another creative person to adapt it to? That's an interesting, that's an interesting insight. I do think that this is my third book. I do feel like what I have, like hopefully it's better technically, but what is what I know to be better is my own relationship to the book mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. The feeling that like you have your, you have your case to argue and you, mm-hmm. you understand the parameters of that argument. Mm-hmm. You do what you can do. And then you have to just accept that you're done at a certain point and it belongs to the reader. And in this case, it will belong also to the screenwriter. Yeah. I think that, you know, the truth is that, you know, of course, I have many friends who are writers who have had many varying degrees of experience with selling a film to uh, selling a book to for film or television. And most of those are pretty unhappy. <laughs> and yeah. I think because the reason being that a book, even though you are beholden to your agent and to your publisher, you exert a lot of control over that. Film is a very different medium. It's a completely right. different game. It's 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 inherently more collaborative, and you know, publishing and filmmaking are both commercial endeavors. They're both artistic endeavors buried inside of a commercial structure. Mm-hmm. So there's also that. You know, you can't really with a book. You may find yourself wrestling with the publisher about the a cover you don't like, but that they feel is more marketable. Sure. With a film, the the conversation is going to be quite different. It's going to be about which star is going to be in it or how they're going to change the ending or how they're going to, you know, rethink the fiction to make it more uh, palatable to what they're trying to accomplish in terms of marketing and ultimately money making. I Look, I barely know how to write a novel. I definitely don't know how to write a <laughs> screenplay, you know? So it's like... I'm a big believer in expertise, and I think one of the yeah. things that has happened in our in our politics and in our domestic life over the last couple of decades, actually, is this weird demeaning of expertise. Hmm. I don't. I I love experts. I love experts. I want experts to tell me what to do. I want people who know what they're doing to tell me what to do. And I think yeah. in this case, if you were if you were an executive at Netflix and you had your choice between a screenplay written by me who has never written a screenplay before and can barely write an email and a screenplay written by Sam Esmail, who has written dozens of them. I think we know who you would choose. (laughs) Well, when you put it like that, it does seem like a pretty, pretty easy choice. (laughs) So 
I got a question for you from a Nerdette listener, which I loved. It's it's a bit flip, but I, I hope you admire the spirit of it because I think it's also kind of a delightful one. Um, it is, if you could be on vacation anywhere during the end of the world, where would it be? Wow, it's probably exactly what I describe in the book, actually. Um, really? Yeah, so the book is set in... A pretend place. I mean, it's really important for me to understand because I have heard this kind of pushback from certain readers who read in a more literal way. The book is written in a place that doesn't really exist. You know, it is possible to find yourself on the winding roads of Long Island and feel a little panicked, especially if you're a creature of the city. But it's mm-hmm. not possible to get lost there the way it is it would be in like Wyoming, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the geography I'm describing in the book is a place that I really, I do go with my family all the time. Um, this particular, the house described in this book is based quite specifically on a house that I rented with my family in 2017. Huh. Um, and I'm not sure I'd want to be there, but we usually what we do as a family is we vacation on fire island which is a barrier island off the coast of long island it's extremely narrow it's not going to be there for many more years sadly Mm -hmm. um and you know it's just a very quiet very beautiful place there are no cars in the community that we vacation in um there's a sort of weird population of almost tame wild deer wandering around oh. uh which you know there is a sense of that in this book yeah. um you can hear we were there actually this summer when i sold the book so i would be doing yeah. these conference calls with uh the studios who were bidding on it and i could hear the ocean from the bedroom you know you're just like 100 feet yeah. from the ocean and 100 feet from the sound i just have such beautiful memories of being there with my kids just really doing nothing like you just go to the beach all day you come home you have a hot dog for dinner and you're asleep by 8 30 so <laughs> if i had to see the end i think that would be a great place to see it you know yeah yeah that sounds pretty great considering yeah well ramon thank you so much it was really a pleasure to talk with you about your book oh it's such a great pleasure thank you for having me that's it for today later this month we are going to be discussing leave the world behind with two very smart readers and writers lisa page and beth ann patrick i got to meet them on a book critic panel last month and they are both delightful i cannot wait to unpack this book with them and with you we want to hear from y'all about what you thought about the book record your reactions in a voice memo and then email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Plus, we have an episode coming out this Friday featuring Emily Landon, who you may know as Nerdette's resident epidemiologist. We've also got a bunch of other great stuff coming up. So stay tuned for that. The show is produced by me, Justin Bull, and Isabel Carter. And our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. See you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.